how many of you have seen the movie Home Alone? Show of hands. All right, good. So this is going to work. I was a little nervous. I want to make sure it's going to work. Uh, if you've seen that movie, you'll know that really kind of the premise of the movie is a pretty major parenting failure, right? To leave your kid, to, to fly across the ocean to France and leave your child at home. So it's a story of a pretty uh, major parenting fail. And if if you've seen the movie, you'll remember that they discovered this like mid-flight. So they're flying, they're on their way, and the mom starts, you know, I just feel like I for- we forgot something. And the dad's like, ah, you're, you're just worried. It's okay. No, 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 I just, there's something there, there's something there. And he's like, uh, the garage door. I, I think I left the garage door open. No, there's just something. Then, then there's like that moment, that cinematic history, history moment. Kevin, right? That's kind of the story that we've got before us this morning. I can almost see Mary and Joseph and they're traveling with the caravan back from uh, Jerusalem, going back home to Nazareth. And when they realize that Jesus isn't with them, I can just see Mary kind of have Kevin, Jesus, like having that moment. And, 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 and I don't know so much if, you know, back in Jerusalem, if there were these completely inept, but basically immortal thieves after because i mean think about those guys in home alone like who survives an iron to the forehead right you, you all these things happen and people don't you don't flip eight feet land on the back of your head you know off of ice and not crack your skull open that it doesn't happen those people seem to be almost immortal and so i don't know so much that 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 was going on back in jerusalem but i do know this they really had left jesus at home in jerusalem because he says, this is, I had to be in my father's house. He was at home, alone, except he wasn't alone, he was with his father. And so that's kind of the context of what's going on in this story. It's really the story of a, of a parenting fail. And, and, and uh, more than likely, Luke interviewed Mary, Joseph, uh, Jesus' mother, and she's relaying this, and so it's kind of probably an embarrassing story for her because uh, it's just kind of a, a story of a parenting failure. But it, it's also the only story in all of Scripture that we have of Jesus' boyhood. This is it. This is the only one. And so that very fact that this is the only one and Luke chose to include this one story means it's got something that must be pretty doggone significant to include. Now, you've got all kinds of crazy stories out there and Gnostic gospel stories. There's even a movie out right now about Jesus at seven years old. All that stuff's just made up. But the one thing that we have is this. And so it's got to have something significant. And it does. Because through this story of seemingly pretty colossal parenting failure, Luke provides us with some colossally profound truths. I mean, absolutely profound, big truths. Truths that are at the core of Christianity. Truths that are uh, stated in things like the Nicene Creed that we um, recited just a few minutes ago, written in 325. Truths that 
like are in the closed hand of theology. There's some things we can debate about, holds the earth and all, how the end time is going to go down, but things that are in the closed hand, truths about the full humanity of Jesus, truths about the full deity of Jesus, and truths about what Jesus came to do, about the work that He came to do through His life, His death, and His resurrection to forgive sinners like all of us of our sins, to adopt us into the family of God, to give us eternal life, and to give us a joy that, that can't be um, taken from us. It doesn't mean things aren't hard, but can't be, can't be squashed regardless of the circumstances that come into our lives. And so that's what this text is about. It's not just a story of them leaving them at home. It's a story that Luke put in here to hammer home Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully God. And He came to do His Father's work. And so we're going to make our way through it. If you're taking notes, man, that's exactly how we're going to do it. And I'm pretty proud of myself. Two weeks in a row, I've had outlines that are just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so I'm pretty happy about that because like, that's what we're about at Providence. We're just about Jesus, all right? We're about worshiping and enjoying Him and leading others to do the same. And in order to worship and enjoy Him, we've got to know who He is. And Luke 2 tells us. Fully human. He's fully God. And he came to do his father's work. And so Luke chapter 2, verse 39. It's on page 557 in the Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one of those. Pick it up. 557 in there. If you don't own a Bible, take it home. We've got tons of those paperbacks. We'll replace them. Take it home. It's our gift to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Look at it with me. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now we know from Matthew that they went to Egypt first, but they make their way eventually back uh, to Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. So we've been reading about the infancy of Jesus. We're seeing that he's growing. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And so what custom? All right, what, 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 what custom are we talking about here? Here's the deal. All men were required to go to the Passover. All right, ladies weren't required. Men were required to go to the Passover. It was mandatory. And the fact that Mary went as well, that the whole family went, just shows us a little bit about the devotion of this family to serve the Lord. I mean, you can say and state all day long like what you think and what you believe, but the way you live it out, parents, in front of your kids, the way you live it out is going to tell them what it is you really believe. Like your kids are going to pick up very fast on what it is that you value most. And so I'll give you a little dare. Ask them. Ask them. What is it that mommy values the most? What is it that daddy values the most? And be prepared for a left hook to the gut. But ask them. And so here you've got Mary and Joseph, and they're truly, they're training uh, up their child in the Lord, not just Jesus, but the other ones that they got, all their children. They're, they're talking about it. They're walking it. They're spending some serious money to travel from Nazareth 
to Jerusalem, and they're already like kind of impoverished people, but they're spending some serious coin to go and do that uh, and be there for a week. All right? And so that's kind of the cut. But, but the bigger picture of the custom that we need to get, that the custom that, that's being referred to here in particular has to do with the fact that Jesus is 12. It's a very significant age. It's a very significant number. Because the rabbis taught that um, when you became 12, you need to travel with your father to the Passover to begin learning the rituals for the Passover because the next year when you were 13, you will be considered a man and you will become a full member of the synagogue. And so what we have here is Jesus at 12 going to, to do that. According to custom, he's in preparation to become a son of the commandment or a son of the law, what today we call bar mitzvah. And so they've made it to Jerusalem. They're, they're going to be there a week. And just like, imagine the scene for a minute, okay? I, I tried to think of, of something that would be a parallel, and probably after I talk about it, one of you will come and tell me, hey, you should have done this. I'm about, oh, you're right, I should have, but I don't have one. So just pretend with me for a minute. Just imagine Jerusalem. 250,000 pilgrims have just come into the city. There's 100,000 lambs there to be slaughtered for the sacrifice. So there's just a frenzy uh, of stuff. I mean, there's, there's, it's, like, it's like Destin, or when you go, there's an Alvin's Island like every two feet from one another. There's merchants there peddling their goods everywhere, trying to sell souvenirs, trying to make a buck. Beggars have figured out, all right, this is the high traffic area, so I need to set up here and get my stuff out here. There's just a frenzy of activity. And so he, Jesus is there with his family and he's, he's hanging out. He's meeting friends. They're worshiping the Lord. He, he's playing. Um, he's probably visiting and playing with John the Baptist, who was just John at this point. He wasn't Baptist yet. He was just John. Maybe he's Presbyterian. I don't know. He's John. And so all that's going on. And then on the night of the Passover, Jesus would have gathered with his family, Mary and Joseph and all of his brothers. And we try to like picture, man, their, their family worship and their family discipleship. And we just sanitize it. It was chaos. You know it was. You, you ever tried to sit down with all your kids and have family worship? It's chaos. But even through all that, his dad's going to tell the story again of how God delivered His people. He rescued His people from slavery in Egypt and from death in Egypt. And so all of that's kind of what has gone on all right, during this week. So verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing Him to be in the group, they went a day's journey... But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And so again, put yourself there. Like, read the Bible with a little bit of a sanctified imagination. Don't read it just as a sanitized, like, put yourself there. Have you, have you ever lost a kid? Or, or maybe as a kid you were lost? It is terrifying. Like even if it's just for a few minutes at a mall or at a, uh, at, a at a ballpark or or at a um, you know at Disney or something, it, it is 
absolutely terrifying. Your heart starts beating. Your voice grows shrill as you're shouting their name and you're running over to people. Have you seen a little boy? Have you seen a little girl? Have you, you know, and you're running around and you're just going nuts and you're terrified. And so that's what they're doing. This is their Kevin moment. And what had happened, how, how this had happened is, you've got to understand how they traveled. They traveled in caravans and the women went first. And the men came behind. And children usually traveled with the women. But when you got to be around 12, if you wanted to, you could travel with the men. So Mary is assuming he was with Joseph. Joseph is assuming he's with Mary. They get to the place where they're going to camp for the night. And the whole caravan, you know, circles up like, like you know, pioneers on the Pilgrim Trail or whatever. And it's just a complete, I thought it was you. I thought it was you. Oh, no. Where is he? So they start looking. They head back. Verse 46, and after three days, like five minutes terrified me before when we lost the kid. Three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, this is not Jesus talking, like taking the teachers to school. Okay, Jesus isn't saying, sorry, mister, but your exegesis on that portion of Scripture is completely wrong. Let me, let me, let me explain it to you. I understand. That, that's not what's happening here. That, that happens later when Jesus is a grown man. But what is happening here with 12-year-old Jesus is this. Jesus is learning. Jesus is learning. There are things that 12 year this is going to blow your mind a little bit. There are things that 12-year-old Jesus does not know. Why? Because he's human. Fully human. And so that's number one in your notes. We're going to break this down. Jesus is fully human. Human, completely, 100% human. And so look at verse 40 again, real quick. And the child grew, and he became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Okay, Jesus is fully human. And I think we kind of get this physically. But sometimes I think we forget that Humanity is not just a physical thing, it's emotional, it's moral, it's intellectual as well. And Jesus was fully human without sin. That's the only difference. And so physically, like I think we get that Jesus was a baby, a real baby, who woke up in the middle of the night hungry. And he had to nurse, and he had to be birthed, and he had to be changed. And then somewhere around the age of one, the Son of God learned to walk. God had to learn to walk. He didn't know how to do He had to learn to walk. And then he became a sinless, I guess, terrific too. Not a terrible too. He was sinless. And then before Mary and Joseph even knew it, he's a 12-year-old tween, like on the edge of being considered a man. Like you can almost picture them. They've got you know growth charts in their house marking him as he grows. 
And so I think for the most part, we kind of get that. We kind of understand, yeah, sure, Jesus grew physically. He, he became stronger. He, he went through the ordinary stages of physical development. But again, a human is not just a physical person. We have minds, right? We have brains. And it develops as well. And so, I mean, verse 52, again, Jesus increased in wisdom. And that sounds weird, right? The, the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe increased in wisdom. He, like, there was some he didn't. That sounds weird, but what Luke is trying to hammer home here is that Christ's incarnation was full humanity. Not just a little bit. Full humanity. That though he was sinless, he had a real body. He had a real mind. And he had real emotions complete with their inherent weakness. See, some of us think that we believe in the incarnation. When what we actually believe is that Jesus had the mind of God in the body of a man. That's an ancient heresy known as Apollinarianism. Right? It, was an, it was a reaction to Arianism which said Jesus was only human, he was not divine. And Apollinarianism came in and said, no, Jesus, Jesus was divine, but not really human. He was something a little different. Both of those are errant. What the Bible actually teaches is the full incarnation of Jesus. Where the divine nature and the human nature exist in the one person of Jesus Christ, down to the physical and intellectual limitations of our humanity. I told you, like, I got into this this week, and I was like, oh, sweet, great little story. Jesus left at the temple. This is going to be quick. This will be 15 minutes in and out. Be the, everybody will be, thank you, Joe. That was the greatest sermon ever. Though it wasn't, it was just short. I know what that means. And then I got into it, and I was like, oh, wow. There's so much here. And so the, he's got these limitations, physical and intellectual, that because he's human. All right, and so that means that that Jesus was completely subject to the ordinary laws of physical and intellectual development, laws that he created. And as he submitted to these laws that he had created, Jesus learned and was taught. Because he didn't know it. Meaning that while in his deity, here's the big, while in his deity, Jesus was omniscient. He's fully human. And so in his humanity, he wasn't. There were things that humanly speaking, he did not know. And this is hard to think about. This is like, He's trying to explain the Trinity. This is hard to think about. But when you flesh it out, you start to see, you know, well, yeah, to be fully human, I mean, he's not like, you know, out of the womb talking, right? He had to grow. So, for example, quoting Philip Ryken, when he was two, Jesus wasn't able to perform complex computations of differential calculus or even just solve for X. When he was six, he did not know the percentage of hydrogen in Jupiter's atmosphere or the distance from Earth to Alpha Centauri. 
When he was 10, he could not recite the capital cities of Africa or the presidents of the United States. With respect to his divine nature, these were things he had always known. But with respect to his human nature, they were among the many things that he did not know during his time on earth. John Calvin, the reformer, put it this way. There is no impropriety in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of some things in respect of his perception as a man. And so as Kent Hughes puts it, man, I'm just peppering you with quotes because they were some it better than I could. The great historic doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man. Not just someone who only appears to be a man. When he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness, right, his all-presence, and his all-knowingness, he placed that under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up those attributes, remaining what he was, he became what he was not, all right, remaining God, he became man. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to the Father's discretion. Because there were times where he knew the future. There was times where he read people's thoughts. These were times when the Father like had that happen. It wasn't an all-the-time thing. And so Jesus had the same, this 12-year-old Jesus had the same mental equipment of a typical child. He experienced the same stimuli. He went through the ordinary processes of development. The major difference, though, is that he did not have sin. And so his mind was not affected by depravity, meaning that what he studied, what he learned, he learned it to the full because his mind was not warped by depravity. So he was never lazy. Good grief, that would have been awesome to see. Never lazy. Learned everything to his maximum. Always did his best. And like I said, all these things are heavy. How can Jesus, the omniscient, eternal, omnipotent one, increase in wisdom, his divine nature, he's omniscient, his human nature, he's fully human like this staggers the mind and so if we take like christmas time and the celebration of the incarnation is just a simple little thing and we take it for granted man we've never wrestled with it it's miraculous i mean what an infinite condescension for for god the son to come and become a human fully existing within our limitations as well. What? We talk about he left the glories of heaven and came to this, but, but he, he became a human. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. Jesus is fully, fully, fully human. Fully. That's number one. Number two, Jesus is fully God. Completely. 100% God. Look at verse 48. 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, now, real quick, here's the question that always pops up here. Did Jesus sin right here? Did Jesus sin? And what Jesus is saying in his answer here is that, like, think about it. Mom and Dad, I've always been where I'm supposed to be. He, he's never sinned, okay? And I've always done what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I'm doing right now. Mom and Dad, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. You just assumed it was somewhere else. So there's, a, there's some uh, misassumptions here, but there's no sin going on. But the big point that should pop off the page at us right here it is what Jesus says. The very first words of Jesus ever recorded in Scripture. Twelve-year-old Jesus. First words he ever says is this. I must be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. So even there, 12 year old Jesus has an awareness that God is his father. That's the first words he's saying. I'm in my father's house. This is a clear claim by 12-year-old Jesus, of deity. It's a clear claim that he is and he knew that he was, at the age of 12, the son of God, that God was his father. But somebody's like, Joe, come on. We call, we call God Father all the time. We pray, we pray, Heavenly Father. Yes, we do. Now, under the new covenant, when prepubescent tween Jesus said it, that was a radical thing to say. Like in the scripture, in the Old Testament, 14 times God is referred to as Father. And to put that in a little context, there's, 600, there's over 620,000 words in the Old Testament. 14 times God's referred to as Father, but it's always in an impersonal type way, just kind of a general idea of paternity. And somebody who really knows their Bible might be like, well, God is called Abraham's Father. Yes. But Abraham never says, and no one ever says, God is my father. Ever. But here comes Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus. And Jesus pops on the scene, and he says, God is my father. And he never used any other term. It was always, my father. Like in his prayers, always, God is referred to as father. In the Gospels alone, it records Jesus referring to God as his personal father more than 60 times. The point is that Jesus is God's son. God is his father. That Jesus is fully God. Fully God. Two decades later, he would say of himself, before Abraham was, I am. Now he's just saying the great I am. He's saying... Before Abraham ever existed, I am. Referring back to uh, when, when Moses is at the burning bush and says, hey, who should I say is sent me? And, and, and God says, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He would say in John 10, 
I and my Father are one. The Apostle Paul would later describe him in Colossians 1 this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. As a baby, He's holding things. Like, that's mind-blowing. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so verse 15 again, He is the image of the invisible God. And so if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what this invisible God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God deals with sinners, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God deals with Pharisees, look at Jesus. If you want to know what kind of mercy God has, look at Jesus. If you want to know what kind of grace God has, look at Jesus. If you want to know what kind of love God has, look at Jesus. If you want to know what kind of ferocity God has, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God deals with our guilt, with our shame, with our brokenness, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully God. They're not some sort of mixture, 51-49. Not some sort of mixture. He is 100% human, like us. And He is 100% God. That's the miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus is one person with two natures. Theologically, this is called the hypostatic union of Christ. Just throw that in there so you know I actually went to seminary. So Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully God. And then finally this morning, Jesus came to do His Father's work. And so look at verse 49 again. And He said to them, Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know that I must be in My Father's house? Okay. Other translations that you may have in here would render this part, I must be about my father's business, or I must be about my father's work. And in reality, the way you do it, in my father's house, or about my father's work, about my father's business, it's really the same thing, because the temple, the father's house, is where God transacted his business. It is where God did his work under the old covenant. And Jesus is saying, I must be there. I must be in that. I must be part of that. That's what I came to do. I have come to be a part of this. I've got to be in there. And so one commentator put it like this. He said, it's remarkable that the first words of Jesus quoted in the gospel narrative are these words in which he so clearly refers to his divine sonship and in which he points to his life's vocation 
to be about his father's business, to serve and glorify him in all things and at all times. The words indicate a divine inevitability. Jesus must be busy with the interests of his father. And what Jesus and his father were interested in was saving sinners. I mean, that's the whole point of the incarnation. That's why Jesus came, to save sinners, to seek and save the lost. And so you put all these things together, full humanity, full deity, and you think about all of these things, and and, and it's just a crazy deal that, that the God of the universe, knowing every single sin you have ever done, I have ever done, every thought, every deed, every false motive, everything we have ever done or will do, still chose in love to send Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Like that, Jesus came and lived the perfect, sinless life that all of us have been commanded to live, but none of us have actually done and, or, or could even do. Jesus came and did it for us. And Jesus died the death as a penalty, as a payment for sin that we have been condemned to die, all of us. Jesus died it for us in our place as a substitute so that we don't have to. And then in victory, like, like, a, like an end zone, like a touchdown celebration, he resurrects out of the grave in victory, making a mockery of his foes and in, in victory over sin and death, resurrects and gives us the gift that we could never earn, forgiveness of life, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, adoption into God's family, salvation, joy. That's the work that Jesus came to do. And he's learning and he's growing. But even 12-year-old Jesus knows that's, that's where this is heading. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Still don't know everything. That's where this is going. And he had to be a human to represent us in our life and in our death. And he had to be God in order to absorb the eternal and all-powerful wrath of God against sin. He had to be there. And so this is what he came to do. He came to be about his father's work. And one of the products of his father's work, and all the parents are about to get excited, but I'm going to turn it on you too, so just hang on. One of the products of his father's work was human obedience. Okay? Was human obedience. Look at verse 50. Human obedience. Look at verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So they come and they're like, hey, where, why, why, why have you done, why, you know, why? And he's like, hey, I'm in my father's house. And they're like, but we, we need to go to Nazareth. And he submits. He obeys. Jesus submitted himself to earthly parents. 
and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And through his obedience and through his submissiveness, he garnered favor with God. Right? This 12-year-old who knows that he is the Son of God, he knows that he is the Son of God, submits to his parents in obedience. Like he's over them as God, but he submits in his humanity to his parents. And as Jesus is the one who set up the laws that say, children, obey your parents. And here, he's fulfilling it. He's living it out. And so here's what I want us to see. This means that Jesus knows what it's like. Kids and students, listen for just a second. Hopefully you've been listening for more than that, but for just a second, please. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with the unrealistic expectations of sin. He understands that. He understands what it's like to live with overbearing parents. Like he gets you. This is, this is not like Jesus. No, he gets it. He grew. Okay? He, he understands what it's like to live with parents who don't trust him as much as they probably should. Like, he's kind of, I mean, he's sinless. They should probably. I'd trust my kids if they were sinless a lot more than I do. Than I, I love my kids, but just if they were sinless. But Jesus understands all this. He gets all this. He understands what it's like to live underneath parents who just, mom and dad, just don't get it. Like Because he, he gets it. He is the son of God. He understands. They should listen to me probably. But does he ever say that? Does he ever lash out like that? Does he ever back talk like that? Like he's sinless and they're not. But all he does, what he does is they say, hey, we need to go to Nazareth. And so he goes back to Nazareth with them and goes back to the carpenter's bench for 18 more years. And his obedience, his submission resulted in favor. And so church, not just students and, and kids, but church. We're called to submit to those who are in authority over us as well. Regardless of whether you think they deserve it or not. And we're called to do this for the good of our own souls. Like Jesus is our authority, but also Jesus is our example. He saves us from our sin, and He also shows us how to live. So live like Him. He's fully human. He's fully God. And he's come to do his father's work and he calls us to join him in it. Whether that's as spectacular as leading someone to Christ or as spectacular but seemingly mundane as obeying your parents and submitting to those who are in authority over you. They're both pretty spectacular in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Father, the longer I know you, the more I realize how little I actually know of you. You are truly beyond comprehension. In your Trinitarian nature, one God, three persons, 
in this hypostatic union of Christ. One person, two natures. My mind cannot comprehend it all. And I praise you for that. Because if my eight pound fallen brain could understand you, you would be pretty puny. My mind swirls in pain almost in trying to wrap my mind around eternal and infinite, perfect, perfectly wise thoughts. And so, Father, I pray that, that we would find comfort in that. I pray that we would find stirring in that. I pray that we would find astonishing in that. I mean, three times here we see he's amazed at what, they're amazed at what Jesus, at what you were asking at the age of 12. And the parents are astonished. May we leave here astonished, blown away, mesmerized, at the glory of your majesty, the height of your holiness, and your imminence of beyond us, but transcendence right here with us. And that you came after us. You came to rescue us. And you love us as a father. The cause of Christ. May we truly exclaim, not just for a few minutes, but with our lives, always, that more than anything that we could think of, Jesus is better. In your name we pray.